This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast, and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Owen Velouche. Now, Owen is a veteran firefighter, an integral part of the CrossFit community in the medical team, but was also recently diagnosed with cancer. Now, we began our initial conversation late last year, and since then, Owen has gone through a gamut of chemotherapy treatments. So we finally sat down a couple of weeks ago and did this interview. Well, after our initial interview, Owen received some incredible news, so we felt it was important to sit down again for a few more minutes so he could deliver that last chapter of this journey that he's on. So I hope this interview not only serves as underlying the importance of health, nutrition, wellness, sleep, and other areas that create resilience in the human body, but also to urge each and every one of you to not only clean your gear, but also get regularly tested so that God forbid you do find yourself with cancer, you catch it early. So before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Owen Valouche. Enjoy. Owen, I want to start by saying thank you so much for getting up early today because I know you're on the West Coast and uh, coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I really do appreciate it. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? (laughs) Uh, I live in Novato, California, which is the northernmost Marin City in uh, California uh, on the 101 uh, outside the Golden Gate Bridge. Just continue straight up and you'll hit Novato and uh, we're the last Marin County city. Beautiful. Well, as you know, I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, I was born in San Francisco, uh, 1976, uh, back in the, uh, the hippie heyday, uh, the hate Ashbury, um, lived in Nevada my entire life, um, raised by my grandparents, uh, Brenda and Joseph Belouche, who, uh, came here from, uh, from Europe, uh, defected, uh, during world war two and made their way here to California and, uh, started, uh, businesses and family. And, uh, and then, uh, about 20 years after that, I was, uh, uh born into the world and, uh, they raised me, uh, not that my mom wasn't there, but, uh, they just had a better, uh, opportunity and better situation to raise me. And, and that's how it uh, came about. Brilliant. Uh, well- brothers and sisters. I have, Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm sorry, mate. I totally cut in there. Just before we even get into the current generation. Um, so where did they immigrate from? And, and, you know, give me their story, because I think that's a very powerful thing, especially in the current climate. Um, there is a very kind of anti 
um, you know, immigrant uh, philosophy that some people buy into. But I mean, over and over and over again, you hear these incredible immigration stories of people that came from wherever it was and, you know, ended up being a, a huge contributor to society. Absolutely. Uh, so my grandfather, we'll start with my grandfather, then we'll move to my grandmother. Uh, my grandfather was born in Czechoslovakia, Munkachev, Czechoslovakia, uh, in the mid 1930s, 1934. And, um, very obviously modest, uh, you could almost say poor, uh, upbringing. Um, and as he, you know, grew up through life, young adolescence, uh, the war was beginning and starting and he, and his brothers and friends um, didn't like what was going on. And they actually became, I guess you could call it like uh, guerrilla fighters uh, against the uh, invading um, Nazi SS troops that were trying to take over pretty much the world at that time. And um, they wanted nothing to do with what was going on. They saw friends and family dying. They saw an occupation of a, of a land that they, called home and they did everything they could to protect it at a very early age. Um, I'll save some of the stories just because you're not sure in today's climate what people may be offended by, but uh, my grandfather did everything he possibly could to fight against and protect himself and his family. I'm sure people can uh, throw in there in their minds what that, what that would be, but uh, he survived and uh, he was able to, once he turned 19, um, he was able to defect to England after he saved a little bit of modest money that he could uh, back in those days. You can imagine uh, leaving your homeland with nothing on your back except the clothes and a very small bag of uh, personal possessions and made his way to London, England, where he met my grandmother. Obviously, the war was in full swing in that time, and um, they met at a... Uh, company called Anchor Glass Company, uh, which was outside of London that was making glass during the war for, for everything from homes to uh, planes to naval ships to you name it. Uh, they were making uh, glass for the company. Now, my grandfather was very, very technical, and he was a machinist, uh, self-taught machinist, and uh, tool and die work mostly uh, on molds, that anything that has to do with plastic injection molding. And uh, he started doing that. And then uh, they dated um, after a very short time dating, uh, as was pretty customary back in those days. They, uh, they got married. Uh, and then from there, they realized they wanted to come to America with a dream to become American citizens. Um, my grandparents were very um, proper. And if you had to um, align that with today's society, they would, uh, they would still be a very proper, very um, formal type family. Um, and they, they want to do things the right way. And so they went to Canada first to get more opportunity to make some more money to, to establish uh, their family. My mother had already been born in England to them. And then they went to Toronto, Canada uh, via ship. And uh, my uncle uh, was born and they stayed in Toronto for a few years. And then realized that America was definitely where they wanted to be. So they made their way across Canada. And this is in the uh, very early 1950s. Um, they made their way across Canada through Vancouver and then straight down um, when it was uh, legally allowed for them to do that. And they made their way to San Francisco, California, 
where my aunt, my, my grandfather's sister was already uh, established and they stayed there for a few years. Uh, grandfather started working in uh, Marin County uh, in San Rafael uh, at a tool and die company um, that he could get more experience and he could save, you know, money, the American money that you don't see in other parts of the world. Uh, and at that time, the dollar was going a lot farther. And uh, so they decided to buy their first home when they could. They bought their first home in uh, Novato, California, their only home. And uh, that's where they stayed for the rest of my grandfather's life. And then uh, my grandmother, who is still uh, with us, uh, I take care of full time. She's got uh, dementia. And I promised her long, long, long ago that I would never put her into a home. And so she's still with us, 86 years old. Uh, dementia's pretty bad now, but uh, this is her residence and this is where she wants to be. So this is where we keep her. Um, and that's how it worked. And then uh, throughout the years, they wanted to become American citizens, but they wanted to do it the right way. They didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to cheat the system. The system uh, gave them everything that they had in life. And so they became U.S. citizens in uh, the late 1980s um, after a long, long road of, of planning for it, prepping for it, applying for it. And uh, they went together and did that. Their company that they started uh, was called uh, JJV Tool and Die, Joe and Joe Volusche, because uh, my uncle's name was Joe also. Uh, so Joe and Joe Volusche Tool and Die, which made uh, high-end metal molding for plastic injection companies. And then they uh, started making molds for, for various companies. Their biggest claim to fame was the OmniGlow Corporation um, and the glow sticks. Everybody in the world knows what they are. Uh, that was uh, my grandparents and my uncle made the, all the molding for that company. And any glow stick you touch today started off uh, from my grandparents and, uh, and various other things throughout the, uh, throughout the times. But uh, that's the biggest one. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm I'm completely straight edge, and I've never done any drugs whatsoever. But a close friend of mine has probably held those <laughs> those glow sticks on many yeah. a rave. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. No, I had them as a kid, and uh, had a lot of fun with them growing up, and uh, it was uh, it was fun. It was a good time. I worked for them, you know, when I was a kid, and that's where I learned my work ethic and how to uh, how to contribute to society as much as I could from them and, and their work ethic and their work ethos and, and how they do it. And my grandfather was always very straightforward with me. He's like, you know, in today's world, as, as he saw it growing up from his time to now, you secure things with a handshake and a look in the eye and your word means something. So, and that's, uh, I still do that to this day. Um, as, as weird as that sounds to most people now, everybody's afraid of litigation and lawsuits. I've, I've never, I've never understood why people need to get so up in arms and uptight about things. They just be honest and true to themselves and, and just do what's right. And I learned that from my grandparents and still follow it to this day. Beautiful. Well, going back to your grandfather specifically, firstly, don't worry about anyone being offended. Tell a story the way it needs to be told. <laughs> that's why I have an E next to my podcast because, you know, that's where, <laughs> right, right, that's right, where the real right. truth and, you know, the lessons learned lies. But, you know, yeah, now absolutely. as a responder, you know, decades into your career, when you look back, obviously he had to do and see things that, you know, a lot of people should never have to do and see. Did you ever see the kind of ripple effect of, of that trauma later in his life? Um, as he started to go into, cause he passed away from, uh, from dementia, um, failure to thrive as he got older, he, he made it to 79 years old, but those last 10 years of his life, uh, were pretty rough for him. Um, as anybody that, uh, 
has a family member, uh, dementia, Parkinson's. He had Lewy body, which is a rarer form, uh, but it affects everything, and you have multiple multiple ailments with that. And as he started to get older, he started to revert back to war stories a lot and uh, it would make him emotional. And you could see that that, that emotional click was happening. Um, so we would do our best to let him talk through it. Um, but we tried to hear the conversations as much as possible because, you know, we didn't want him to relive some of those things and we didn't want him to have to, um, you know, in, in his, in his brain is, as fragile as it was, we didn't want bad thoughts to be in there as, uh, as he went through the final stages of his life. So we just tried to steer the conversations, but we never saw any, any other traumas other than that. It was the emotional side and being that type of generation person, you know, was, this is way before the, the emotional and the, the mental health, um, side of things is as we know it today. And, uh, it was just, you know, much like the fire service, when you talk about the old salty guys that, maybe back and or coming back back in the day when you first started that stuff never bothered us because it wasn't out in public eye it wasn't this push for for the mental health uh, side of things so he never never discussed it growing up he never would talk about it he would just always express how lucky i had it um and he tried to you know reflect on stories that he think or he would think that uh, would be beneficial to me growing up as 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 a young adult and and that's where I got the, the saying, I'm not raising my children, I'm raising adults. You don't try to raise children, you try to raise adults. And, and I can tell you that the way I was raised uh, benefited me tremendous. I had to do things on my own. I had, to, I had to figure things out on my own. I was given nothing. Um, I wasn't given trophies. I wasn't given, I had to earn it. If I wanted something, I had to go and work for him. I had to work hard uh, for pennies till I earned it. And uh, I think in today's society that needs to be out there more. And I think a lot of people that listen to your podcast and a lot of people that are on your podcast that come from, you know, the very wide backgrounds, but I think people understand that more and more today. I think it's important. I'm glad I had the opportunity to do that with him and learn that specifically. Absolutely. Sounds like a hell of a, hell of a mentor and a grandfather. So with that early life, again, you touched on them raising you predominantly. So kind of walk me through that. You know, where was your father early life? And then what was that dynamic as you started going through the school age? So my mom uh, met my, my father, who was also here from Novato. Um, he was a Marine and uh, they met um, and lived in Hawaii, Oahu, where I was uh, conceived and uh, almost born. Um, my skin uh, tone of uh, this pasty white guy that doesn't tan being almost a Hawaiian is pretty funny to think about. But uh, born in San Francisco, like I said, um, they had a very short marriage. Uh, they were young. They were 20, 21 years old when uh, when they got together and when they when they had me and they just realized that that wasn't something that uh, was going to last. And so they just ended their marriage and stayed cordial. Uh, obviously the, the family on, on my dad's side and the family on this side, you know, they all kind of grew up together. So they knew each other. Um, but it just wasn't meant to be. So my mom, you know, back in the day, back in the seventies was just a partier and a, you know, free spirited person. And she didn't really have the means at the time to, uh, to take care of me and my grandparents took me in um on a full-time basis and i i lived everybody always knew growing up always thought that my grandparents were my parents and uh nobody really knew knew otherwise um 
nothing specifically bad from my, uh, from my mom's standpoint, she did the best she could. She, she tried. Um, but it was just way better, way better off to, uh, to be raised by my grandparents. And, and that's how it, it came about. I had a small stint where I did live with my mom, uh, and my, my stepdad, uh, who came into the picture a little bit later on in my life when I was around 12, 13 years old. And, um, but it, it just wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted and it just didn't feel right. So I ended up moving back to my grandparents' house until I was able to get out and get my first apartment. Um, uh, yeah. So when you were that age, when you were school age, you ended up obviously being a tactical athlete as a firefighter. You ended up being, you know, deeply embedded in the CrossFit community. What were you playing and what was your athletic, you know, level when you were at school age? Um, I was bigger than most uh, kids my age. So obviously you start with the soccer, you start with the, uh, the sports that uh, just kind of get your, you know, understanding of, of team dynamics and, uh, and how to work in a, in a group setting. And, um, so I did the soccers, I did the, you know, the softballs, I did the, uh, I did all the things that, uh, as a young kid, um, that, you know, you, you start to, and then I played football for a little bit. Uh, and then I realized really early on that I liked contact sports. Um, and then from the contact sport, I, my grandfather being European, uh, he always pushed, uh, he always pushed hockey. So I played ice hockey, which, uh, that continued me um into playing midget and junior uh junior hockey here in california and i was uh, very very uh, well suited for the game uh went very far got scouted by quite a few colleges um was fortunate enough to get scouted uh, on the west coast of canada uh, by a few teams and then uh, realized that that's not what i wanted to do i didn't like being the kid that uh fought for everything i didn't like being the kid that was targeted because he was from california and uh just decided not to do it and stayed here uh still play uh, every so often haven't played with uh currently what's going on with uh with what we're going to talk about but uh, that'll always be my first love uh hockey yeah it's a great sport it's a shame i was never near an ice rink but i mean the the combination of the obviously the skill with the park but also the the physicality i think uh, there's very yeah. few sports that could really be you know put in the same bracket as far as toughness Oh yeah, there's uh it's uh it's a dynamic game, you know, it's it's way different than when I played, so much faster and so much more tactical now. Uh but man, it's uh it's it's quite the uh <laughs> it is quite the sport for sure. Absolutely. Well, career aspirations, same age, what were you dreaming of becoming? You know, I didn't really have a plan growing up. I just knew that I wanted to have uh, a solid work ethic like my grandfather. Um, and then as I started getting to my teenage years, I thought law enforcement would be the way I wanted to go. Um, I didn't really have a specific, like, I want to be this department or I want to do this specialty or anything. I just knew that I, I think law enforcement would have been the, the way I wanted to go. I, I knew I was not suited for, for desk work. I knew I was not suited for being inside. I had to be outside doing something. Um, so I figured that would just be the way to go. And then um, I knew a, a police chief that, uh, said, you know, maybe you should go look at the fire service before you make your determination. You know, you're almost out of high school. And then, um, I said, okay, I'll, I'll go check it out. So I did a ride along. I did a ride along actually with the department that I work for, uh, now, uh, when I was, oh boy, 16, 16, 17 years old. 
and said, okay, this is what I want to do. Well, then I got a wild hair um, and I'm like, you know, maybe I should try the military first just to, just to do it, just to get some, some more life experience to, to give back, I guess is the best way to put it. So I signed up for the army. Uh, 82nd airborne ranger is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a medic um, because I knew I was going to go the fire service route. So I figured, well, why not, why not get some medic experience and why not try the ranger side of things? You know, it seems like it'd be a challenge that I could do. And about two weeks before I was supposed to ship off to boot camp, my grandfather had his first medical episode and, um, I made the determination to, um, to remove myself from the military, uh, after a pretty long, uh, discussion and I don't want to say battle, but it was, it was not an easy process to remove myself. But once, uh, they realized why I was doing that, it was to take care of a family member, uh, basically somebody that uh, I would consider my dad. Um, I finally got the, uh, release from, uh, active duty that uh, I signed up for. And, um, I removed myself from the army and I took over my grandfather's business and, and started helping him out uh, that way before I made the determination to go to the fire service. Yeah, well, and that's a you know an admirable thing. I think people don't realize that once you sign <laughs> once you sign your name on that line, I mean, you know, you're in it for the long haul unless there's um, some pretty uh, significant circumstances. Absolutely, and you know, it was my son now who's uh, will be 20 here in August. Um, you know, he he went to the army. He's in the army now. He's in Oahu, and uh, um, it's it's fun and it's beneficial to watch young kids nowadays that uh, still have that drive to want to do things uh, and they do it. And uh, I, I guess I could say I'm kind of living through him <laughs> to, uh, to do that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's important, especially now in today's world. Absolutely. So with your journey into Novato, um, you mentioned about being in a, a seemingly pretty high level athlete. What was the kind of academy orientation process like for you in that department? Um, I was a volunteer in 1995. Um, I went down to Novato and, uh, when I realized I wasn't going into the military, uh, right before graduation, I said, well, I might as well start my career and let's, let's kind of figure this thing out. And I went down, uh, to the local training site here at the, at the, uh, Novato fire. And I inquired about their, uh, volunteer program. Now their volunteer program back then was a very sought after, um, program in this area because it produced anybody that got into that program got a paid job <clears throat> and back in the mid 90s you know early 2000s there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that can understand that it used to be extremely difficult still is but it used to be extremely difficult to get into the fire service that's just when the paramedic stuff was really starting to take off and the the excitement was there for the fire service and there were very few jobs for a ton of applicants. And uh, I went down and spent weeks and months uh, getting my face seen and, you know, making the commitments and letting them see that I was interested. And then I put an application to become a volunteer. And at the time, the volunteers went through the same exact testing process that the paid staff did. The same physical agility, the same oral board, the same resume, um, application process. But those that checked volunteer got put to the volunteer side, and those that checked paid, if you met the, the staffing, went to the, uh, went to the paid side. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get picked up. I was young. I was 18. And uh, I learned how to 
become a firefighter. I learned how to go to the firehouse. I learned how to keep your mouth shut. You learn how to listen before you said anything. You learn how to not to say anything. You learn how to mop. You learn how to sweep. Uh, you learn how to go on a call. You learn how to, you know, everything, anything in the fire service. That's, that was my indoctrination because I never had it in my family prior to that. So I didn't know, but I just took the work, that work ethic that my grandfather taught me as I was growing up and I just applied it. And I just molded it and, and seemed how I needed to do it at the time. And that's how it came about. Now, what about strength and conditioning? What was the kind of ethos in that department when you joined? Um, the fitness was there, but there wasn't really any big push. There wasn't any big studies yet. There wasn't anything that was, you know, fitness is, is the, is the way to go. You have to do this. That's still the era where, you know, the engineers stereotypically were the bigger guys. They smoke cigarettes at the pump panel. You know, it's beer as soon as you got off work and you, you went and partied as hard as you could on your off days and the fitness side. I mean, it was always there, but it just wasn't like it was today. You know, and the, I guess if you want to throw any strength and conditioning component to it that people follow religiously, CrossFit wasn't the main driver yet. Um, it was, it was just kind of go in the, in the weight room. Let's do some treadmill. Let's, let's do some bench press. Let's, uh, let's get as, as strong as we can, you know, on the, in the vanity muscles and, and not focus on the, uh, the other things, the cardiovascular endurance, the things that you really need to focus on. And, uh, so it, I mean, it was a big portion of it, but it wasn't like it is today. So you mentioned CrossFit, obviously that's a community you became very embedded in. Talk to me about your introduction to it. And, and if you have uh, a first workout story, like so many people do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. Um, I, so my son was a, was a gymnast. He started off, um, doing gymnastics at an early age and the, his gymnastics coach at the time, uh, was also the owner of a couple CrossFit boxes here in the local area. And so he's like, Hey, why don't you come down and do a workout with your son? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that seems yeah, okay. Whatever CrossFit. And so I went down one time and I went and did the adult class and I wasn't in bad shape, but I definitely wasn't in the shape that I got to, uh, with CrossFit. Um, now CrossFit's not the end all be all. Some people just don't like it. Some people can't do it for whatever their own reasons are. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of benefit to it. And so I, I went down, I started doing some workouts, um, just to kind of figure out what it took to be a part-time CrossFit athlete, participator, whatever you want to call it. And went more and more and more and more and more. And one of my first workouts was obviously, um, Fran, <laughs> as <laughs> some people are, some people aren't, uh, used to or know about. And, uh, it absolutely destroyed me. And, um, I realized that this was what I needed, this particular sport of fitness, I guess you could say, is exactly what I needed to excel me in the fire service. Now, I had been in the fire service for about six years at that point. This is 2006, 2007. And, uh, and that's how it started for me. And I just, I went at it full time. I, I crushed it to my level, to my ability. And I was nowhere near games athlete. Um, I mean, such a few small portion of the population gets there. Uh, but I was the fittest in the firehouse. I did what I had to do to, to make myself, 
as harder to kill as possible. Um, I focused on the nutrition, hardcore. I, I got away from the big plates of pasta at the firehouse. I got away from the second, third, fourth helpings of, of dinners and desserts. And I just focused on, on learning my body and, and learning how to be as lean and fast and strong as possible. And that led to being as strong and healthy mentally as possible uh, as well. And then as I was doing CrossFit and just kind of dabbling in it and not following online and not following athletes per se, and just, I didn't realize there was this world of CrossFit out there um, where it would be where it is today. And so in 2012, I went and did my first um, CrossFit event as a volunteer medic. Um, it was in Santa Rosa at the Santa Rosa fairgrounds. And, um, I went up there and I got onto the team just because the guy that was running it was a local fireman here and he knew me and I knew him and he's like, yeah, why don't you come join me? Very small group of people. And, uh, first time I met Castro at that event, talked to Kalipa, um, talked to some of the OGs in the, in the CrossFit community that uh, we all know now. Um, and that's how I got hooked. And then, um, I applied for the games that year and was fortunate enough to get, uh, onto the games team down in, uh, Carson. Um, and that's how my career working for CrossFit started, or excuse me, like working for the CrossFit games started and, uh, haven't looked back since. And it's only gotten bigger and, and more, uh, more fun for me as the years have, have gone on. I'm sure we can hit some of those, uh, those points for sure. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Jason Kaliba. He was literally on um, this week on this show. I just had met yep. him in uh, San Lock yep. Jacks. And then uh, Dave Castro was on, I think it's about a year ago now. But again, amazing. The fact that he trusted me to, to tell his story and even talked about some of the SEAL stuff too, <laughs> which which is, you know, yeah. rare. But I think it's, it's an invaluable part of his story. Um, when I look back, because I started about 06, 07, I can't remember exactly which year it was, but it was around then. Um, one of my friends was in the CrossFit Marina, Huntington Beach. Um, and I remember specific events where I started to realize, wow, mentally slash physically, I am in such a better place now. And there were, you know, very, very big incidents where a lot of my, my colleagues were, uh, basically toast. And I was able to kind of, you know, jump in and start helping and send them off to rehab. And it wasn't again a, wow, you know, what an amazing person you are. It was just, wow, this training is incredible. I'm the same human I was before and I would have been just as tired of them. All of a sudden now I've got this different kind of capacity. When did, did are there any kind of moments in your career that you started seeing that on the fire ground as well? Uh, we're very big into wildland firefighting here, uh, where I'm at. Uh, wildland is a, um, is a massive component to our, our fire statistic calls and, um, the hills here, are, you know, the Marin County, California, you know, some, extremely steep, uh, you consider high angle. Um, and most of it, those is moderate, you know, hillside, um, rolling hills. And I noticed that I was not fatigued. Like I would normally be, uh, with hose packs on my back and trying to catch a five, six, you know, seven acre grass fire with wind behind it. Um, I was able to, to motor a lot faster, a lot quicker, recover a lot quicker, uh, work without a breather on, um, and I was able to to do things that I wasn't uh, able to do before uh, because one, I wasn't paying attention to it Two, I wasn't up on the nutrition, but 
having the modalities that CrossFit provided for me at the time. And again, it's not for everybody. You know, some people just don't like it for whatever reason. Um, it provided for me what I needed for my body to work as, as efficiently as it could. And, uh, yeah, that's how it worked for me was, was the wildland firefighting aspect. And then, then it started to make sense. And then as you get more into it and you start realizing, and then you start adapting it to different things, you know, ladder evolutions, climbing the aerial, um, you know, doing hose evolutions up and down, you know, multi-stories during training, uh, on vehicle accidents, going out of County on, on mutual aid assignments or going out of County on, on wildland responses for, for multiple days on end with lack of sleep. And, and you have to function at a high level and all those things over the years through CrossFit, it prepared me, you know, because when the tones go off, you don't know the rep scheme. You don't know the event. You don't know what the movements are going to be. You just know there's a start and an end and you have to mold yourself or you have to prepare yourself for whatever those events may be. And it's the unknown and the unknowable. And that that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Absolutely. Now the mental uh, element was huge for me as well. When I look at, you know, some of the, the academies I went through, Hialeah, Anaheim, they were incredibly taxing. You know, and you have people motivating you by telling you that you're not going to have a job if you don't do X, Y, and Z. Um, that is, you know, very inspiring <laughs> yeah, yeah. for a young probie. But as you start getting into your career and you have that um, stability of being, you know, three, four, five year firefighter, that kind of why starts to go away a little bit and you have to replace it with you know the fact that lives depend on you and how can i seek discomfort in different ways and the mental element the pain cave you know the red the red zone um was something that blew me away with the crossfit as well and again i i'm totally with you you know it's it's not for everyone i think the combination of strongman movements and crossfit that's what works for me way over distance as well as the crossfit in the gym um but you know whether it's with a sled in my hand or as you said doing fran being in that horrible place you know every once a week every once every two weeks when you have one of those critical events and you do have to climb that high rise or and that extended, um, you know, extrication. The last time you were in a really shitty place was only a week, two weeks ago versus in the academy. Right. So what was your kind of philosophy right. on that element? Um, I think my answer here is going to kind of be a little convoluted and just bear with me. But as I moved through the fire service and as I moved through my, my, um, my desire to do different positions in the fire service, I always went back to training. I really like training. I like training the new guys and some people enjoy the training route. Other people don't, they want to be on the calls, but I always, I always wanted to impart knowledge that I learned throughout the, throughout my career. And I just hit uh, my 23rd year of service. And you, you take those calls that, you know, may have been nerve wracking or scary or whatever you want to call it for you in the beginning of your career. And the new guys coming in or the new, new folks coming into the fire service, a lot of them don't have the same life experience that some of the old saltier folks grew up with. And that's not a knock on them. That's just society in general today where I grew up doing manual, manual labor because that's the way I was raised. Some kids don't understand that nowadays and they don't have the manual labor background. They don't have that, that understanding of the way um, a more strenuous growing up, type of lifestyle was. Now that's no knock on anybody. That's just society as it is in general. So I always started teaching kids like, listen, when you dial 911, the person that's dialing 911 doesn't compute or doesn't understand that when a firefighter shows up, 
they give up or say no. That, nobody ever thinks that. It's they dial 911 and the firefighters that show up resolve my situation. They make my emergency better. They hopefully save my loved one. They put my house out if it's on fire. That's it. And if you're deconditioned mentally, if you're deconditioned physically, and you can't provide to the taxpayers what they're paying you to do, what good are you on the fire ground? Now, some people look at that and go, well, that's pretty extreme. Well, yeah, it should be. You're entering an extreme career field. You're entering an extreme um, you know, career that could take your life, that could end your life if you're not ready for it. So I always wanted to give back and put back to the people that I was teaching or the new folks that were coming up that, that philosophy and that, that thought process so that they look at it differently. And hopefully as they're going through their career, they start doing those things that prepare them mentally, physically for a career like the fire service, like law enforcement, like the military, but give it to them in a little bit more uh, abrupt uh, you know, push in the face, if you will. Well, that's a, a really important perspective, I think, for people to understand. And I really had an aha moment when I started this podcast and I'm interviewing, you know, British SAS and, and Navy SEALs and these, these high level, you know, men and women that are out there overseas, you know, protecting complete strangers and obviously protecting this country. And over and over and over that they were saying, no, we hold, you know, law enforcement, um, police, uh, the uh, EMS system, we hold you guys up to the same bar as us because when we're overseas, you're the ones that we're relying on to protect our families till we come home. And so I agree with you completely. There's as many people that are fired up in the fire service, there's definitely a kind of upstream push against that, you know, and, and we have to understand that, yeah, I mean, the, my logo says lives depend on you. I mean, it's that simple. Like when, you know, I say this a lot, when a plumber screws up, they flood your house. No one dies. When a firefighter screws up, there's more than likely someone's going to die. So it's a huge differential, and we should be in the same bracket as special operations and all these people that we admire and do hero was for and, you know, make movies about. And it's, you know, we're, I think, a very humble profession, so we kind of downplay what we do. But the actuality of the, the, uh, Physical exertion and an acute level of performance, you know, overworked, sleep deprived. I mean, there, there is no other profession that you can really compare that to. So when you take the special operations community, that was really about the closest I think that you can find of, as you said, three, two, one, go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that's important. You know, that I always get young firefighters that come through like, oh, you know, I want to get experience here. Then I want to go to a big city and I want to run calls with New York and I want to, I want to go to Chicago or I want to go to LA. A fire is a fire is a fire. It starts off small. It's going to grow if you feed it right. It's going to get big if you just let it do its thing. It doesn't matter where you're at on the globe. A fire is a fire, but it comes down to who is on the fire ground. It comes down to the training you've had to be on that fire ground. It comes down to your equipment that you know on that fire ground. And ultimately, it's going to come down to the tactics, the strategies, and the incident priority that are going to bring resolve to this. And it all starts with the person that puts that uniform on. You know, you could have one fire a year at a volunteer department in rural America, or you could work for New York City and you could run five, six, seven, eight fires a day. Sure, you get more reps and sets, but training's free. You can still train like you do. You can still 
prepare and read and study and, and make yourself the best firefighter that your county, your city, your, you know, your region may have, but it all starts with that person. And if you aren't preparing for it and you're not prepping for it, then what good are you to those taxpayers that are, you know, expecting you to show up and not say no, unless there's obviously major things that are, that are pushing you back to, to, you know, have a turn down assignment or not want to go in there for safety reasons. But if your grandmother called 911 right now because her house is on fire and grandpa's stuck in there, I don't know any firefighters nowadays that would go there and say, no, I'm just not going to go in there. I just don't feel like it today because, you know, I, I, I just, I don't feel it cardio wise. That just doesn't compute anymore in today's world. And you can't, you just, you just can't do it. But there are some people out there that may want to do that. And that's where you have to train them and teach them that like, no, this is not a, this is not an option anymore. You can't do it like that. You can't think this way. You have to be, you have to be ready to go and, and, and do the job. hundred percent. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that perspective. So circling around to the CrossFit, walk me through, you know, you, you, you find the, uh, the community itself, you start as an athlete, you work your way through to the medical team. So now walk me through the kind of steps of the ladder that you found within that community. Uh, uh, amazing community. Um, you know, I got in it at the perfect time, uh, for, for where this story is going to go for me. Um, I started off, had no idea, joined, put the application in just like thousands of people do every year. Um, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of hate mail cause there's people listening to this that I have not accepted on the medical team for, for years. And <laughs> hopefully after I explain the story of why that, that happens, uh, uh, people will understand. But, uh, I just went down, I went down to Carson, had no idea what to expect. I just knew I was going to work and, uh, didn't know what role I was going to function in, didn't know the other medical professionals that are going to be next to me, uh, you know, working with me, uh, doing any of it. And I showed up and I learned real quick how the, the whole organization chart for CrossFit works and how to get things established and, uh, how you, how you work in the, on the team and, uh, became a volunteer for them. And, I uh, was a volunteer paramedic. You don't truly function as a paramedic per se, you're using um, pretty advanced first responder skills, I guess you could say, but you're not doing any advanced life support skills. You're not doing IVs. You're not pushing drugs as a paramedic for the team. Um, I did my first year. I went back my second year and the same people that I worked with the year before, some were there, some weren't, but the, the command staff uh, was all there. Um, our medical director, Mike Ray, uh, who resides in Arizona, uh, who's been there for, for a long time and oversees the entire medical program for CrossFit. Uh, he was there. Um, my counterpart, uh, who my counterpart is now, uh, Kelly Baker. He's a, a fire captain um, down in Carpentria, California. He oversees our logistics component. Um, and me, he um, was still there. So uh, the next year came back and um, the person that I took the position uh, or, uh, she was, um, she was a firefighter captain in a local area here in, in California, um, ran the program for, for a number of years, uh, was great in her position, did a lot of good things for, for CrossFit, the medical team. Um, but she just determined and decided that, uh, there was other things in, in life that she wanted to do. So she recommended me to, uh, 
to the CrossFit Games staff, uh, Jay Mack, who you had on your, your podcast not too long ago. Um, he is, is my boss at the Games. He got uh, the word that, uh, that they think I would be the good fit for that. And uh, Kelly and, and Mike Ray uh, supported that. So I got a position as what's called the black shirt. Uh, so you'll see folks at the CrossFit Games. They walk around in black polo shirts and say CrossFit on them. That's what I became. It became a paid position. Um, it became a position with a little bit more uh, authority and um, oversight for the entire CrossFit Games. But my portion was specifically the medical. So then in there, you know, you, you start to really quick, you're taking a look at what needs to be done, where, where things need to get lined out, what needs to happen. And so I looked at it just like a fire. There's a problem. I'm going to put a box around it so it doesn't get any bigger. And I'm going to assign it resources until it goes away. So that's how I started organizing the team. Now, Mike Ray has a very specific role. He's globally there to take care of patients uh, that need us. He's there to take care of staff that may need us on a, on a medical side of things. And Kelly and I are both firefighters. So we said, well, why don't we develop this team and make it run like a like a functioning firehouse it doesn't have to be a firehouse, but we're both firefighters. So we said, why don't we do this? So I took over the operational side of the games team, uh, team management, and Kelly took over logistics side, anything that has to do with anything we need to make the team function, he's in charge of. And um, so that's how we molded it. We went back after the games, we put together a very simple business type proposal that we were going to send back to CrossFit HQ and the legal department to get them to check off on it. Uh, the doc had a, a strong hand in saying, yes, I like this. No, I think we need to change this a little bit. We need to, to do this. And that's how it rolled. And then uh, we just started doing it. Uh, one of the biggest things I take a tremendous amount of pride in, in knowing is out there that any CrossFit events across the globe where you see a red shirt that's standing there, we're called the red shirts because we wear red medical shirts. I put in place a vetting process. So anybody that enters the CrossFit medical team to work has gone through me, single point of contact, and I have vetted them and their medical background to make sure that they could work on the medical team. Licenses are up to date, no disciplinary actions that would warrant you not working uh, on uh, basically the top athletes in the world. Um, and you are who you say you are. And if you work the CrossFit Games medical team, you have worked for me at what used to be the regionals. And I was able to travel around the world uh, and oversee the medical teams to, to increase those pool numbers for our, for our games team. And if you work for me in an event, then I selected you to, to work on the games team. You know, whatever our numbers were allotted uh, at that year. We've had teams up to 70 people and we've had teams as low as 20 people. But right now we function at 40. And it's a great number. Uh, we have doctors of all kinds. We have nurses of all kinds. We have paramedics with all different types of backgrounds. We have EMTs with all different types of backgrounds. We have athletic trainers. We even have our own chiropractor on the team that just takes care of us because we're working all day long, up and down, running. So I bring in two, uh, two chiropractors that, that take care of us, and that's all they do. And uh, it's, a, it's a great... Um, flow of work, the way things are going now, it, it, it functions like it should. Uh, everybody has a job, everybody has a role, everybody has a boss. And ultimately all those things come back to a, a very simple span of control. And, uh, it makes things work wonderfully uh, as compared to what it used to be. It just kind of 
go do this, go do this, the hodgepodge stuff. No, it's very streamlined operation now. And, and it's, uh, it functions like it should, just like any incident that you go on in the firehouse. I, that's a very convoluted answer. And I apologize if that rambled a little bit, but um, I hope that uh, answered uh, your question entirely. Yeah, no, it was great. And actually, is so you have a very unique perspective of CrossFit. You obviously got in you know, early and you saw the evolution as an athlete, uh, as a coach, but also through the medical lens as well. Um, and I know, you know, when I look back, you know, like I said, since 06, 07 ish, you've gone all the way from the main site, you know, being kind of coach secondhand through someone who attended an actual box all the way through to where we are today. Um, I've seen, you know, the undulation where we've done you know, really well, I think at the beginning and then, uh, you know, where a lot of people try to fast track to be a competitive crossfitter. And that's where I think we saw a lot of the, the injuries. And then now I think we're in a really good place where people understand mobility and muscle balance and those kind of areas. And I think the coaches are now getting to the point where they understand the lifts, the gymnastic movements, et cetera. When you look back at the CrossFit game specifically, you know, obviously one that's very glaring would be the, the Murph that year, you know, in uh, the middle of the day. And we, it's funny, we just did Murph. Uh, yeah. I just did it with a, a dislocated rib, actually. <laughs> I got it jacked up on, uh, on Thursday in jiu-jitsu and did Murph on Monday. So yeah. that, that was a new experience working around that. But so, you know, without loading the question, what have you seen pros and cons of, of this journey CrossFit has been, you know, in the last 20 years? That's a, uh, I like how you brought the Murph into that. I get asked about that the most of, of any event ever. And I was obviously working uh, down in LA when that happened. And that was an exciting day. <laughs> that, was a, uh, that, that was an exciting day for the CrossFit Games medical team. If, uh, if we had video from inside the, the treatment area, it would, uh, it, it would have been impressive for people to watch and how well the athletes were taken care of and the way things got handled and, and, uh, and how the athletes bounced back. That was, a that was a learning point for, for a lot of folks. Um, how it's changed and, and where it's come in 20 years. Um, it's just amazing. I, I don't, I don't know any, any other way to say it, but as you progress through anything, you, you always reflect back on where it's come from and just the way athletes, can move efficiently now with the weights that they do uh, for me is, is the most impressive thing. If you take a look at Kalipa at the first event going against Spieler and, and how 135 looked like it was just a truckload of weight versus now where you have a 65 year old masters athlete doing 135 like it's nothing. And then you look at the weights that some of these athletes are putting up. Is that efficient for me and my body? Absolutely not. I can't, I, I don't even pretend to some of these snatch weights are, are my max deadlift. <laughs> so it's, it's crazy that way. Um, I think the education is probably the biggest component though, that I, I think is, is changed. It's the amount of education that is out there for any athlete of any capacity of any background can access and get the same knowledge that a Froning or a Frazier or a Toomey gets, you have access to that as well. And it's up to you how you want to apply that and use it. But the, the information is there. So it's the information sharing and CrossFit that I think is the, is the, is the biggest, most beneficial component that has changed over the years, is the, the availability of it. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thanks for that perspective. Um, yeah, I think that you said that that Murph one was, was a big thing, but I mean, I think every gym – 
every box you know around the world because i mean let's face it crossfit is a is a global community which is why i'm still kind of scratching my head as to that burn the church down you know element when uh, yeah no <laughs> when that happened but yeah. anyway <laughs> yeah um, yeah um but you know we saw it locally we saw it in the box we saw members you know hurting their backs hurting their shoulders and again it was it was a, a lack of understanding innocently i think from some of the coaching really just to to really pull on the reins of the members and be like look you know before you start learning butterfly pull-ups let's work on a pull-up a strict pull-up you know and so as we matured as as coaches and as athletes and the you know that rather than the ego leave ego at the door being simply a sign people actually understand what that means um i've seen you know now i think it's it's a great great time and you know probably you know, as as good as it's ever been in the journey that I've witnessed. Well, if, if, if let's take it away from CrossFit. If you showed up at the firehouse to do your first day of, of Proby school, they're not going to say, here's a 35-foot ladder, uh, throw it. You're going to learn. You're going to be taught. You're going you're gonna to be shown way before you do something if you've never had the experience to do it. So that's just like like CrossFit. Like if you, if you show up and you have a coach – pushing you, and I'll use the, the, the term coach very loosely, if you have somebody pushing you to do something that you've never done and you hurt your back or you hurt your body in some way, well, that's on them. Like That person should know that, hey, wait a second, uh, I'm coaching this completely wrong or I'm teaching this completely wrong and I shouldn't be doing that. And there's a portion of it also, like if you've never deadlifted or you've never snatched or you've never done you know, a clean of, of substantial weight, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should should understand the movements first so that you don't get hurt. And I think that's where CrossFit gets, you know, a bad reputation in, in a way with the internet today and, and the way, you know, videos can be edited. Uh, and you get these videos of people doing really bizarre, weird movements for likes and clicks. Okay, well, that's not really conducive to life, doing a a toe-to-bar med ball over the, the bar to catch it to a wall ball movement. like what does that do? That doesn't, that's just, that's just for clicks and likes. You have to take those movements and you have to take what's, what's functional about those movements and apply it to your life. And some of the earlier, you know, on CrossFit, you know, internet commercials where it shows people farmer carrying grocery bags or removing something off a top shelf or lifting a bag of dog food. Like those are functional movements that you could take to the gym and work those movements for your lifestyle. And that comes down to the person doing it. And that comes down to the quality coaching that you do find around the globe. And, and that's important to, to make sure that people understand that when they're looking for something to do an extracurricular sporting activity, that that's anything, but especially with CrossFit. Um, I, I wish it didn't have a bad name in some circles like that because you get those trolls on the internet that, that want to poo poo it all the time. Well, CrossFit hurt this. Well, actually at our department, the number one, extra or uh, exercise write-up that we have on the books is a treadmill. The number one is the treadmill. Well, you've been walking since you were a child and CrossFit certainly can't take uh, ownership of walking, but people lump it in there. Well, CrossFit hurt me because he was doing a, a treadmill push-up, whatever workout. Well, no, the treadmill hurts you because you're just being stupid. It doesn't have anything to do with CrossFit. So I would hope that would change in the future with education, but we'll see. You, you never can underestimate the the uh, the power of somebody watching something on the internet. 
Yeah. Well, actually, my, my son joined me yesterday for a workout and it was, uh, three AMRAPs with a rest in between and it was deadlifts. The, the reps got less. The, the weight got more. And it was, I think it was, uh, pushups and mountain climbers as well. But he's about to turn 15. Um, he did CrossFit a few years ago for a bit, but he's been a runner. So he's been doing track and cross country, really getting into it. And so when we came in, he's looking at other kids um, in in the class and he's like wanting to put more weight on. And that's just it. As a dad, I had to be like, look, this isn't even a conversation. You're going to leave it. And this morning he's like, oh, I'm so sore in a good way, like muscle soreness. And I was like, you see, that was that lightweight. You've got to be able to kind of feed it in. And I think that like you said the ego, the ego is huge and, and the application too. So when you're teaching other firefighters, the the relatability I think is very important and also the the fear removing the fear of looking stupid so you get that you know like you said the toaster bar med ball you know whatever there's no application for what we do but you give someone a sled or a sandbag or a kettlebell and you tell them hey this is like advancing a hose line or dragging out a victim all of a sudden a they understand why they're doing it and b it's a movement with very low skill that anyone can kind of jump in and start doing exactly Absolutely. 100%. 100%. And, that, and that's, that's the, the key to it. And that's what you hope that people will try to focus on. And, uh, but like I said, it's the internet likes that sometimes drive the uh, common sense out of somebody's brain. Yeah. Well, speaking of the internet likes, we, you know, we have a school shooting and then within a day, everyone's talking about the Johnny Depp trial again. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's sad. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot to, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unwrap in both of those and uh it's just it's a sad state of events especially the uh, the texas those uh, that's 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 a rough one i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go into that that's just a, that's horrible it's horrendous well let's move on then to you know the chapter that you're currently in so leading up to this obviously you know you've got a high level of fitness you're owning your nutrition walk me through you know where you were prior to the diagnosis and then, you know, what you were feeling, seeing, and then, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get into the actual treatment journey that you've been on. Absolutely. So obviously the reason I'm on here, um, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgson's lymphoma. Um, and I apologize. I'm going to try to get through this without, uh, uh, getting emotional, but it's been, it's been really difficult for me and uh, it's still part of my healing. And, uh, so I apologize now. Um, if I, uh, if you hear the cracking in my voice, but firstly, don't um, apologize. Like I said, this is, no, this is no supposed worries. to be raw no and honest. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's a pretty famous CrossFit couple, um, that's out there. Um, she has won the CrossFit games before and her husband, um, developed a fitness program, uh, that a lot of people, a lot of people do, I'll leave their names out of it. They're, they're a great couple. Uh, this has nothing to do with what caused this, but this couple saved my life and I'll explain why. Um, so going back about a year and a half, two years, my driver hurt his back really badly. Um, he, he messed it up in a fire and he went in for, to the docks. He was off work, thought he was going to have to retire. Um, and so I started giving him like, Hey, let's try this. Let's do this. Work this stuff off duty. Let's get you back to full duty. And he was at a low spot. He was at a spot where he wanted to take his own life. He, um, the pain, the suffering that he was going into or dealing with every day, um, was crushing him. And, uh, his wife actually 
stopped him from going to his gun safe one day. Um, that's how, that's how bad it got for him. And, um, he came back to duty and I was doing a program that, uh, I really enjoyed. It went, it went away from CrossFit, but it was more monostructural bodybuilding movements. And, but I was still doing the CrossFit on this, you know, at the end of the workouts, you, you had the option to, to do, um, CrossFit style workout just to get the cardio up. And, um, so I had been doing this program for, for quite a while, almost two full years. And I was doing a movement one day called the rack pull where the weight is on a, on the, the J hooks about a little less than knee height or maybe a little higher than knee height, whatever you prefer. And you're pulling a single weight off. You put it back down and rest. Well, I was doing a pretty heavy weight for me. I was in the upper three hundreds and I felt a pop in my back, um, my, my right hip back area. And, um, I said, Ooh, that didn't feel right. I've never had that before and sat down, realized pretty quickly that, uh, something wasn't right. And my driver who I, I bounced off that subject, we got him back to work with this program. And so we were working, it ended up being his psoas muscle and trained him out on how to re-engage his psoas muscle and his back pain went away. So he came into the room when I was dealing with, he's like, Hey, is it your psoas? And I'm like, I don't know, man, this doesn't feel right. Like this, this is a weird, weird pain in my right hip area, my right so as quadratus lumborum, it was like this complete circumferential area and, uh, went and laid down like any fireman. You're like, Fuck, this is just another minor pool. I'm not going to write it up. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a big deal. I don't want to go off duty. I got a couple of days of overtime set up. I gotta, you know, I gotta have the money. So I, I, I'm not going to go to the doctor and go off work. So I just let it rest for, for about a week or so. And then I picked up the following day was, was chest day specifically. And I, I reached down and I grabbed the weight, the dumbbell on my right side. And as I picked the dumbbell up, my back popped again. I'm like, Oh boy. Okay. Something's definitely not right here. So then I took about a month off. I just did cardio. I just rode the bike. I, I walked on the salt runner. I, I, uh, I did the erg as much as I could, the ski erg, um, just tried to stay movement wise, you know, moving, but I didn't want to really do anything specific. And then the pain went away, the, the issue went away, and I was able to get back to, to a functioning life. But I just had this nagging sensation in my right hip for, for almost two years. And nothing specific, just like this nagging pressure. We all get that shit. I'm in my mid-40s now. And <clears throat> didn't think anything of it. And uh, having access to the CrossFit docs that I do, having access to the, the medical knowledge that I do, I reached out to, to a few of them, and, and we were able to do a kind of a video uh, conference, uh, nothing, you know, specific, just, I mean, these are personal friends of mine. So as anything, you know, you help each other out and walk them through what was going on. I did a, you know, I did some movements they wanted me to do. I put the camera down and I, I was able to squat. I was able to lift my leg, but every time I got to a spot, I showed them like, yeah, it hurts right here. Well, you know, without diagnostic equipment, they can just give a, a best guess of what they thought it was. And, and these doctors all thought it was one thing and all thought it was something completely unrelated to, to what ended up being. And, um, so fast forward, pain went away and I was functioning at life again. And then we had the CrossFit games back, uh, here home in, in San Jose, uh, Aromas, uh, Morgan Hill, uh, a few years ago, um, because of the, the COVID and we weren't back in Madison, Wisconsin. So the docs were here 
like, Hey, can you take a look at this? Like nothing big, but you know, wanted to just do my due diligence. Didn't want to go to my own doctor. Like, why should I, when I have these, these guys here to my disposal and we're all buddies. And, uh, they're like, yeah, you know, you should get in and get an MRI. You should go in and, and do some more diagnostic tests, but we think it's this and, you know, three different doctors at three different times and away from each other. So they weren't, you know, sharing the same information around each other. Um, all thought it was, was one thing. It presented just like it was. And, um, so I let it go. I'm like, oh, it'll heal on its own. No big deal. Just labral tear, just whatever. Well, my walking got really difficult. Um, I was having a real hard time walking. Uh, I was having a real hard time at work climbing the ladder. I was always stretching at this point, like always trying to do a groin stretch, rolling a ball, stretch my quad, stretch my back, elongation on a teeter hang up, um, whatever I could do just to relieve the pressure. And I've been going to the doctor. I went and, you know, did our annual physicals at the firehouse. All my blood work was great. Never had an issue, never had a, uh, anything in the in the blood work that would come back to to make me worry, and then um, 2021 CrossFit Games Madison, um, I did an image on our C arm imaging machine that we have underneath for the uh, for the athletes. I was like, I think I'm going to need a hip replacement here. And Doc's like, Well, let's get you in on the, uh, let's get an image in there. And so we went and took a couple images of my hip, and there was nothing. There was no issues. Like spacing was good. Everything looked great. Bones were good. No big deal. Got back home, went right to Hawaii to see my son who's in the army in Oahu. And I was having a real hard time walking. I was like, the pain was just like excruciating. And I, I look back on the videos of me in Hawaii and you'll see me like sitting there off in the distance, stretching, you know, my, my right foot up on my left quad. And I'm just like trying to lean forward to stretch out my back or push on my hip or all these, you know, everything everybody does during the day, not thinking of a, a single thing was wrong. Got back home to, to California and I was remodeling my grandmother's house. I was underneath doing, uh, I was sweating pipes for, for a bathroom remodel. And I came out and my sciatic nerve on the right side triggered. And it was about five days of just pure agony. Like I've never experienced in my life before. Um, I'd never had a sciatic nerve issue. I'd never had a slip disc issue. I'd never, I've never been sick. I don't even, I'd never even took Motrin up to this point. <laughs> and, um, my doctor, who is a personal friend of mine, who is my jujitsu rolling partner, um, I sent him an email and, um, I, I, I when I tell people this story, I, I call it moments, moments in life. So I sent him an email at a specific moment of the night. He opened it at a certain moment of the night. He sent it off to the uh, radiology department at a certain moment. They opened it at a certain moment. They sent me back a message saying, hey, you can come in Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Uh, beginning of November 2021, and we'll get you an image at that moment. I drove up the next day at a certain speed, at a certain tempo, at a, you know, I made all the stoplights you know, in these certain moments to lay on a table to get an image of my hip. And um, about a week later, I got a phone call back saying, everything looks fine with your hip, but we see some shading on your T12, on your, on your T-spine that just doesn't look right. It doesn't look appropriate. Now, about a month before, I was at work functioning just fine, and I was doing a workout in the apparatus bay, and I was on the bike, and I was doing a burpee workout, and we got a call during that. And 
when I got to the call, when I, or when I finished my workout, I jumped up on the engine and my hip popped in a way that I was like, you know, that just didn't feel like it was okay. So I thought that shit, when I did that movement, maybe I had a hairline fracture. Maybe I, like my disc went out at that point, but it, it went and it went away right away. So there was no, like, there was no, nothing that was triggering me to, to think anything bad. So then obviously this MRI stuff starts happening and um, I get a phone call back like, okay, this T-spine thing just doesn't seem right. Let's get you back in for another image. Let's just rule this out. You're, you're getting too much uptake in, uh, in some of our markers that we don't like. So I go back in, they image my back, get a phone call back about a week later uh, and my world changed. They said, there's nothing on that T-spine, but your right hip, something's not right. Uh, we got to get you back in for more imaging. There's, there's something going on with the bone that we do not like. Um, the radiologist is, is throwing terms around that uh, are, aren't good. We're telling you right now. Um, so then that's when my world of testing and, and my, my world uh, had changed um, at the time for the worse. And then I went in for bone scans. I went in for dye marker tests. I went in for more CT scans. Um, and then as I progressed through these different tests, you know, they were narrowing it down uh, to what type of cancer it was. And uh, as you can imagine, um, going from a healthy individual that ate right, exercised, uh, didn't have any, any thought in the world that I had a, a potential fatal wound. And um, finally, um, beginning of uh, December, like the first or second week of December, they're like, okay, we got to get you in for a bone biopsy. I go in for the bone biopsy. I was given some information that wasn't accurate by the, by the interventional radiologist that spiraled my world out of control at that point. Um, waited three agonizing, long, brutal days for the biopsy results to come back. Biopsy results came back. It was inconclusive. It was a bad sample. They didn't know, but um, they're going to send me in for a PET scan on December 24th, 2021. Um, now you can imagine I, I had had multiple weeks of just pure agony, um, being unsure, uh, thinking my life was over, um, terror not sleeping. Uh, anybody that's listening to this podcast that has been through cancer, that has had a family member uh, diagnosed or they've been diagnosed, they know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about in this situation. Going for my uh, PET scan, my doctor calls me. He says, hey, I am waiting with the oncology team. It's Christmas Eve. It's five o'clock. They said, as soon as you're out, you call us immediately. And we will read this and we'll call you back as soon as the doctor gives us the, the, the thought. So I did my PET scan and uh, called him and uh, I waited for about an hour and a half. And he called me back. He goes, okay, are you ready for this? And I'm like, bro, yes, I'm fucking ready for this. Let's give me the results here, please. And I don't remember how the conversation went. I remember ice inside of his Yeti mug when he's, taking a drink to start the conversation on the phone. I can remember the ice sitting on the side of the cup. And I, again, I don't remember how it went, but he goes, the good news is it's not the cancer that you were told. Um, so let's knock that one off uh, right away. 
immediately was just elated. He goes, but you do have cancer. And uh, the doctor is highly confident that it is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I was ecstatic at that moment because it wasn't the cancer that I was told and what I thought it was. Um, and it was the best Christmas present I could have ever received, but it was the worst Christmas present I could have ever received. Um, I was still in shock. I didn't know what to think, but I was happy. And then as the following days, weeks, you know, come about, then the realization hits me that, holy shit, <laughs> you, you have cancer. Like you, you, you still have cancer. You have the C word. You know, what used to be a statistic is now a reality for me. And um, I need to figure out how I'm going to get the game. Like I said earlier, there's the problem. I need to put a box around it now and I need to assign it resources so it doesn't get bigger. And I had my self-doubt. I had my worry. I had my, my own uh, mental demons to fight. <clears throat> and I just said, okay, well, you're not going to take no for an answer. You're going to be your own best advocate and you're going to tackle this just like a CrossFit workout that you don't know anything about and you're just going to motor. And um, went through the holidays, um, went through the first of the year, got in for my second bone biopsy um, on January 4th. Waited five days. The biopsy came back and it was confirmed that um, it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was isolated to my right acetabulum and it had spread to my left hip. But the spread was, it was just starting. It was just, just starting. Um, and I knew right there, my doctor told me, he goes, not only, he's mm -hmm. like, you need to listen to me now. He's like, you've had your moments of self-doubt. You've had your terror. This is not only survivable, this is, this is curable. This is, this is totally curable. And it was the first time in almost a month that uh, I heard that. And you can imagine when your life is going with nothing wrong. And then all of a sudden your world goes to, you know, half seconds when the world's going by you at, at hyperspeed. And uh, then I was set up to go to my oncologist, meet my oncologist for the first time, um, January 14th. And I started treatment uh, January 19th. And I had my first treatment called the RCHOP method. Um, it's, it's a long-standing uh, series of drugs uh, that you take <laughs> for lymphomas. Um, and you just hope that your body and your, your mindset and your um, preparation of life is going to get you through these drugs and going to get you through the, the, the chemo cycle. Uh, I was set up for six cycles of uh, what's called the R-CHOP. And um, I went in. I had my first rounds done um, via IV. Um, and then I was able to get in for a port that they put into my chest. Um, had the port put in. And then everything else after that was all, all done through my port in my chest. And uh, never looked back. I... Uh, I crushed it every time. I got ready for it every time the way I, I needed to. And, um, yeah, I just did what I could and I'm, I'm slowing down my talk here cause it's, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, kind of what went down and how it went down and the shock of it still is hitting me. And I apologize for that. But, um, cause I'm only seven months into this journey of, of changing my life drastically and to where I am now. Um, so it's still a very, 
very raw emotion. And as anybody knows, uh, going through this, it's a, it's a very, very raw emotion. Did my first cycle. Um, and I knew after my first cycle, about two weeks, like something was different. Something, something was different with my, with my hip. Um, it felt different. And I remember waking up um, at home here and I just, like it, it felt off in a good way, but not a bad way, but a good way. And then I, you know, I go through the, the recovery of the chemo and chemo is not for everybody. Chemo is not a, uh, not like a sports supplement you just take and you feel great. It, it knocks you, it, it puts you in the dirt. Um, let alone with the prednisones that you take and the shots afterwards that you have to take to get your white blood cells back up. And then it's still a guessing game until you go in for your first imaging, until you, you meet with your doctors. It's still a guessing game. They don't know if it's working. Have my second round or my second cycle, excuse me, um, in the beginning of February. I met with my doctor via Zoom call a um, couple weeks after that. And I'm like, Doc, something seems like way different with my hip. It feels like I don't have the pressure there anymore. I don't have the pain. I'm moving. I'm squatting again. Um, and he's like giving me this thumbs up. And he's like, this is exactly what we want to hear. Your body is, is taking in the medicines just like we wanted. Your, your body is fighting off, obviously, the cancer at this point. And now let's get you in for your first PET scan. And so I go in for my first PET scan um, after starting chemo uh, the end of February, February 25th. And I had to wait five days. That's how they do their PET scans. You either do it on a, on a Friday or a Monday. I chose the Friday, went through the weekend. I got a phone call back from him and, you know, they start their, their small talk. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm like cut to the fucking chase, get to the results. I want to know. He chuckled. Um, he goes, I am seeing nothing but positive here. Um, your bone looks like it's regenerated almost 95% back to normal. Um, if we did a biopsy right now, I'm highly confident that we wouldn't see any live cancer cells at all. Um, I start crying immediately. Um, I, I start thinking about my kids. I start thinking about um, how a month earlier that they told me that I had a fatal cancer that was not curable or treatable. Um, and I, I mean, this, this wave of, <laughs> of emotion, this wave of, of just everything, you know, comes over you. And I, I heard nothing. I heard nothing else other than what he just told me. And uh, my girlfriend was sitting there and she was, you know, fortunately she was able to, to listen to the rest of what he was saying. Um, and I just, I collapsed. I just, I literally just collapsed on the ground and just, just cried. Um, you know, you don't, you don't ever want to go through something like that. Um, you don't ever want to experience something like that, but then to hear that you're going to get a second chance at life when so few, um, or, you know, many get it, but with cancer, you, you, you're, you're so, and especially in this line of work, you're, you're so used to going and seeing the end stage. You're so used to going to hospice patients to help them, to move them to a bed, to, you know, to help families. And as, as embarrassed as I am to say this, you know, I never took the compassion that I should have. And I'm always compassionate with patients, but going through it now and realizing what it's like to go through that, um, 
thinking about all those patients that I've had contact with before. And I never, I never understood what a family was going through and, until I was going through it myself as greedy and as selfish as that sounds. Um, and that, I just, I just collapsed at that point. Um, got off the phone and, um, I went and I celebrated with my, uh, my first beer, uh, since uh, going through this process. I was just so elated. And then I hit March and I went and did my first treatment in March. I went and did my second, so which would have been my fourth in March. Um, hit my fifth one in April and I finished up my, my chemotherapy cycles, uh, May 4th, um, obviously this past year, um, the doctors uh, were super excited about uh, about my treatment and and how it went. Um, I was able to keep muscle mass on. I was able to keep weight on. I was uh, I was able to work out throughout. Um, I was able to do everything I needed to do mentally to to keep you know moving and fighting forward. Um, and I just had my first PET scan post treatment. Um, I'm still waiting to hear the results back. Uh, from my doctor, which will be June 7th. Um, but he's, like I said, he's, he's highly confident it's gone. Um, he's, you know, there's no way a cancer can spread during chemo. There's no way the cancer would come back with the particular regimen that I was on. Um, the particular lymphoma that I had is called PLB, primary lymphoma in the bone. 1% of the world's population gets it. And it's the highest cured uh, lymphoma that there is, um, you know, so it was a major turn of events for me in life. It was a major, uh, major shocker for me. Um, it happened. I have to, you know, realize now that moving forward, I'll always have a history of, um, and I just, I, I have to be there and I have to be an advocate for others that are going to go through this because there will be others. That's the scariest part. Um, you know, I'll never know how I got it, but the doctors have a, a thought and it, it aligns with other firemen that have, have had this before. And, um, you know, now it's just getting back to a life of, of a solid mental health, which has taken a huge hit. And the mental health side for me is, is taking a massive hit. But, uh, as you know, when we first started talking, I told you, I wanted to get this story out. Not that I was unique because of, of, of what the cancer is or who I am or, or what I have to, to, to contribute to life in general. I mean, there, you've had many, many guests on your program and each person has a story for a reason, but I, I knew in my mind that I wanted to get my message back to other firefighters, to other law enforcement, to other military, to, or to other people in general about listening to your body and going to your doctors and not taking no for an answer, not just taking the blood work that you get from, you know, your annual physicals and just being like, okay, everything's good. It's just a a hip injury. It'll heal. Cause if I would have done that, this would have been a, a way different podcast. This would have been a way different outcome for me. And, um, the way it went down, the way it happened, the, the aggressiveness of this cancer, um, because those images I told you I got back in July, there was no issue with my hip at all. And then from then until November, that's when my bone was, was basically eaten from the inside out. And, uh, but it's, you know, the images now that I see on the, on all the scans, it's, it's rebuilt itself. And it's just now the, the recovery side of, uh, of things that have to to take place and, uh, time distance shielding to get my hip back to where it used to be. 
Well, mate, for a start, thank you so much. You know, I mean, going through it is one thing, but also coming on here and sharing it, I think is is admirable because like you said, there are so many takeaways. And sadly, as you know, mm-hmm. I think what a week ago, Carmen Ordonez came on telling the story of her husband, Fernando, who didn't make it, you know, who had remission and then yep. ultimately passed. Um, when the doctor was talking about possible contributing factors in the fire service specifically, what were some of the things he suggested? Um it was a global, obviously, conversation with other doctors. Uh, diesel particulate, uh, turnout pants um, is the is the biggest thought process. Um, but nobody can ever put their finger specifically on it. You never know what's going to cause a cancer. Um, but the thought is the turnout pants on the at-bay floor um, from the inside, the diesel smoke. Um, and then the next biggest thing, obviously, was uh, any type of the, the benzene. Um, car fires um that's where it's at now let me ask you this what was your work week well what is your work week in in your department were you doing 2448s or what was the pattern i was doing uh 4896s uh it's two on four off two on four off so that's how it works so yeah so that's a sad thing when we have these conversations i don't know you and i have talked about this is you know we look at the carcinogens and of course that is a thing that we're exposed to that but the resilience of the human body is that the the part of it that's not in discussion and when you look into the world of sleep medicine and you see how destructive you know one night without sleep is no matter a, you know a 48 that I wish would also be part of this conversation because I've had in my last department hardly ran any fires, but they ran their ass off 24 hours a day mm-hmm. and they lost numerous firefighters to cancer. Yeah. The, you know, the, that's one of the biggest things that I am, I am really learning now is, is how nice it is to sleep at home, how nice it is to, to be in my own bed, how nice it is to, to not have those tones going off at night. And, um, and crushing you, um, that, that is, I didn't realize just how bad stress can add to, um, to your life in the fire service. I never, ever, ever once related it. I just thought that, eh, no big deal. It's just, it's just, uh, the way, the way it is, the, it's just something you got to deal with. It's just, it's just life, you know, oh, you get some sleep the next day, bullshit. The way, the way somebody else's emergency affects us, affects us differently. The tones in the firehouse, the way they wake you up. Um, some departments listen, they, they simulcast and they, you listen to other neighboring agencies. Um, so you have a jump on the, the calls that may come into your next due zone. And it's, I wish there was a way to take stress away. And some people say they meditate. Some people say, you know, I go for a bike ride. You can try all the things you want to, but if you're in any career that is a a high stress career, you're going to have it. It's going to be there. There's no way to eliminate it a hundred percent. You can't. I mean, there's, I, I worked out, I exercised, I fly fish, I, I do as, as much outside as I can. I, I don't associate myself with being a firefighter when I'm off duty. I'm dad or I'm owing to people. I, I, I just don't 
I just don't want the, the stress and the BS in your life. And stress is a major, major, major contributor to, to cancers. And I had the nurses tell me, they're like, stress, we see more people in here that have high stress jobs that come in with a cancer and, and we see them in oncology. And I'm in California. I've been on every major campaign fire in Northern California since 2017. And when you have these, these oncology nurses saying in the past, you know, three, four years, we have seen an influx, that's their term, an influx of firefighters come through here with cancers. And then you, you just start to think, I mean, like, all the stressors, I mean, everything just, just contribute to it. And it's part of the job. It's, it's part of the career. It's, it's hard to, to not have it, but how do you do, how do you take it away? You really can't, you try to, you try to deal with it, but you can't take it away. You just, you just can't do it. It's, it's there. And then you, people try to say that, Oh, well, okay. Now that you're diagnosed, okay, don't stress out. Like, all right, don't stress out. You've got, you've got something in your body that is trying to kill you and you are not supposed to stress out. You're supposed to live your life like normal. You're supposed to go out and, and just try to function. Like it's, no, it doesn't happen that way. It, it does not work that way. And if, I mean, if I had a nickel for every time people would tell me, okay, don't stress, don't worry, try to, try to find your happy place. Well, my happy place was being cancer free, just like anybody that has had it or has lost a loved one to it. Like you, yeah, your happy place is having your loved one back or not being sick. And, and it's a tough road. And that's where the, that's where the, the mental health uh, is really important and, and being open enough to talk about things and being open enough to, to discuss, you know, things that bother you in in a firehouse or maybe not, but you know, the firehouse, the kitchen table is where every problem gets solved and you hope your buddies don't rip on you or make fun of you for, for coming to the table. Um, and it's, it, but it's tough. It really is hard. Well, I think the other, like you were saying, the stress, especially the wildland community. So obviously when you get deployed, it's not for 24 hours. You're out there for, for a long, long time. So there's that stress element and also the lack of rest and recovery. But I think the conversation also needs to be here. You have, you know, a high level athlete who understands nutrition and, you know, is getting cancer. You know, I mean, this is, this is the, the conversation we need to have. Top Gun is, is a big movie that just came out. Those pilots are not awake 24 48 hours at a time they're responsible for you know a multi-million dollar piece of equipment and therefore they have x amount of time they're going to be in the air and training and then a lot of time to rest and recover the same in the commercial airline industry shipping industry you know trucks you name it but the fire service where we're responded to either you know deploy and go cut line or do progressive hose lines or you know make entry on a burning structure or extrication that we work these men and women 56 hour weeks minimum before, you know, overtime and deployments and all that stuff. And within our profession, it's like, Oh, we need to, we need to clean our gear. It's like, yes, absolutely. We need our clear. Absolutely. We need to put plyma vents on the engines. But does anyone want to have this discussion about why we're working our people almost double what an average civilian works? It's, it's insanity. So given our men and women the rest and recovery, is the elephant in the room for the mental health problem, the cancer problem, the obesity problem, and all these other things that are, you know, ending up with folded flags being given to grieving, you know, men and women. Mm -hmm. You know, our department right now is going through a, I mean, there's a, there's a hiring challenge right now. I think in, in 
globally in, in the fire services, you know, it's uh, in law enforcement as well. I mean, they have their different stressors, you know, the way they're treated. Um, but we're having a really hard time finding recruits, um, getting them to sign up, uh, finding qualified people that we want to hire to represent our patch and to represent our brand. Um, and so what does that do for the, for the folks that are on the floor? You know, as, as attrition happens or as promotions happen, you move out of one rank, you go to the next and it makes it, it makes it hard to, to find a work-life balance when you don't have the personnel to allow people to have the days off, to, to stop being mandoed, to, to not be at work, you know, 20 days out of the month. And, you know, that, that itself, you, then you start adding the stressors from your house or, you know, from your home life. And, and it, it, it goes right back to the job. Then you're at the job and you're running, you're running calls that you just don't feel like you want to be in and are on. And, you know, for the fifth time, the same person that's calling for, for this reason or that reason, or somebody's calling because they have a dispute with their neighbor over a, a leaking fire hydrant or somebody's watering their grass too much. And they call the fire department out. You know, you take these little calls that never used to bother you. Then you add all these other stressors in life to that. And it's just this constant bubble and bubbling, you know, vat of, of drama and your body's going to react how it's going to react. And, and I, I had stress. I had a lot of stuff going on in life that could it have contributed to it? Absolutely. Did it? I'll never know. Um, but it happened. It's here. And now you got to deal with it and learn how to remove things from your life that you don't want. I use stress um, and move on to a, a better functioning life without that, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Now, when you were going through the chemo journey, did you change any, any, um, change the way you ate? And were there any other things, saunas, anything like that that you put in as well? Absolutely. Um, very good friend of mine that works on the CrossFit Games medical team. He's actually my clinical supervisor. His name's James Lee. Uh, he's a, a nurse. He lives in Texas. And um, he got me on. He's like, listen, he's like, you eat pretty well now, but I really think you need to focus on keto and uh, let's, let's, let's get you down the keto route while we start this. And, and I was doing, you know, pretty much a, a more paleo style diet. I, I didn't really specifically focus on, on one thing. If my body wanted it, I ate it because I would work it off. Um, I was 210 pounds. I was five or 6% body fat. I, I was, I was in really good shape prior to. So then he sent me the book, The Longevity Diet uh, by uh, Walter Longo. And I started reading that and I started, I specifically focused on the, the section about cancer and doing a keto type fasting um, diet leading up to, to chemotherapy. So I did that. So December 17th, I started on keto. Um, I dropped from 210-ish down to 190. Um, and I was, I was shredded and I didn't like it. Every time I walked by a mirror, every time I walked by my reflection, all I saw was a cancer patient. And it, it caused me a lot of mental, a lot of um, further mental trauma that I didn't, I didn't really want to deal with. And I was, I was having a real hard time getting out of that. Today, I started it. Let's just continue it. So I entered my first chemo cycle almost a month later, uh, or yeah, chemo cycle on, on keto about a month later. And, um, it worked. It, it, I felt okay. 
but the headache that I got from it because my blood sugar is being low um, was rough for me. Um, shortly thereafter, I was able to obtain a sauna and I was doing sauna work in the morning and in the night, 40 minutes morning, 40 minutes night, um, just to flush out any impurities in my body that I thought were in there um, and still do it regularly and, and religiously to this day doing the, doing the sauna work. Uh, I've gotten off of keto um, back to just a more uh, paleo um, zone-ish type diet nutrition plan. Uh, but again, if, if there's a donut on the table and I feel like having a donut, I'm going to eat a donut. I'm not really stopping myself from, from getting uh, what it's craving at that time. But I don't eat a lot of sugar and I don't because uh, cancer needs sugar to survive. So I, I try not to, to, to go into that realm at all. See, it's interesting. I just uh, had a conversation with Michael Easter yesterday. He wrote The Comfort Crisis, and he revisits a topic in his book that um, I actually want to get a, one of the experts on, but it's apoptosis. So when we you know, we don't eat for 12 plus hours, that's when the body starts kill, you know, basically cleaning up all the dead cells and, and getting rid of them. So when you put, whether it's on its own or whether you put chemo with it, it's more often than not in a lot of cancer treatments you see these people you know they're they're on all this this uh this medicine these pharmaceuticals but there's no discussion on as you said you know what can you do outside time in nature sunlight sleep nutrition hydration and you know when you align these two together you're obviously seeing you know a, a, an improvement in the overall success mm -hmm. you know and and that comes down that comes down to the person it, it's that's going through it and what works for them. You know, when this whole thing started, it was the cold winter, rainy nights, you know, and days here in Northern California. And there was no sun, there was no desire to go out and get, you know, sunlight or be outdoors. It was this, you know, this phase of depression and the early stages of, of shock for me. Um, so, you know, finding your own comfort level and what you can do at that time is, is tough. It's, it's hard, but you have to do your own research. You have to listen to your doctors. You have to do what works for you and your body at that time. And, and only you're going to know. And, and I hate to say it this way, but it, it takes a while once you start your treatments and to, to get your test results back to figure out what's working and what's not. And you have to be able to adapt and change on the flight, just like the fire ground, just like, you know, a law enforcement situation where you're, you're dealing with a high stress situation that's changing, you, you have to evolve quickly because you don't have a lot of time. You don't have, you know, weeks, months, you know, years to be able to sit there and say, ah, I don't like this. I want to, I, I may try it later on. I mean, at least the way I looked at it, I, I was dealing in, in a realm of seconds. Like I need to make this decision. I need to, to, to research the best I can. I need to keep, you know, I need to move forward and, and get myself better. So I just eliminated things that I, I knew weren't good for me. Um, and, and I motored on as, as best I could. I am a, a, a big proponent of the way the sauna made me feel. I'm not a, I'm not a, a specialist in, in the art of saunas. I just know how it made me feel, how, I, how my body recovered after chemo while using the sauna. Um, my sweat looked completely different than, uh, than it ever has before when I was in the sauna. I mean, it, it was working 
for me and how I thought and uh, my recoveries were way, way better with that. Now, what about the mental health side? You, you touched on it before, but I have actually spoke about this yesterday in the conversation. And one of the things that scares me is is death. You know, there's, <laughs> there's no there's no certainty of what's after that. There's, you know, is it is it the chaos theory? Is there going to be a, a nice, friendly gentleman with a big beard welcoming me into uh, into you know pearly gates? So that kind of shock of your mortality or the reminder of your mortality, because obviously we see it all the time, you know, when the people that we run on that don't make it, um, but that's different than, than, than yourself. So what was, you know, what was the mental health journey for you from, from the diagnosis through to where we talk today? I was terrified the moment I got the, you know, the, the call about it, because as I said before, in, in my mind, the only cancer patients I ever go on are the end stage hospice, that slow agonizing deterioration of life. And I am the complete opposite. Like I'm, I'm remodeling a house. I'm, I was at the firehouse working out. I was running calls. I was in Hawaii. I was living life as a mid 40 you know, year old man. And to think that your life is going to be over and it's just going to be this, this downslide um, was really traumatizing, was very difficult, was very um, abrupt for me. And you never think about your mortality. Some people do, but um, I didn't enter the fire service thinking that I was going to be uh, encountering this. I never thought that I was going to be sick in any way. Um, I never thought that I was going to have any any traumas like this that I would ever have to worry about. And the only thing that, that took it away was time distance and shielding away from the initial conversation with my doctor that I have cancer was every day was a step towards recovery. Every day was a step towards feeling better. Every day was a step towards getting that first test, second test, third test, you know, as before, as you start and when you finish your, your treatment plan for whatever ailments you may have and seeing that it's working, seeing that the path that has been put in front of you is working. Uh, that's the only thing that helped me with my mental health. You know, you, you sit down on the, you know, to watch TV to just to escape for a moment. And every TV show that I turned on, every radio thing, every song like it has to do with cancer. You have to, it just, it, it seemed like this continuous endless cycle of just this mental torture for me. And, and it was rough. It was really, really hard. I didn't like talking to people because I, I had to rehash it and relive it. And I thought I was doing the right thing by putting it out on social media for my friends and so I could give them the PSA, like go to the doctor, get checked out. If it could happen to me, it could happen to any of you. And I realized real early on that putting it out there in the, in the universe for people to, to see and digest only made it worse for me because of the phone calls and the, and the outpouring of support from people. Um, so that made it hard. Um, even talking about it today with, with a counselor is, is very difficult. Uh, even talking today with you um, is as much as I wanted to do this there's been portions of this where I've, 
I found myself like going in a slow circle trying to think about what to say because it's still scary. It's still, it's still fucking scary. It's, it's something that I'll always have to live with. It's something that, that is going to be there in, in my wheelhouse for, for the rest of my life. Now the doctor doesn't think that it's going to come back. He's, he's highly confident that the way my body reacted to everything, he, he does not think it, it will come back. But even when you tell the story about your past guest that was in remission and it came back, that's terrifying to me. That's, you know, and, and obviously his cancer was different and, and every cancer is different. Uh, each body is different. Each person, the way they react to it, it's, it's going to be different. And if the doctors miss one little thing and it's still there and you don't catch it, and it it's, it's tough to think that way because I've never had to think that way in my life. Cancer doesn't run in my family. I was saying my buddy of mine, uh, who I grew up with from, uh, from the mid teenage years, um, he, um, was diagnosed and, uh, fought a battle with, uh, with lymphoma as well. And, um, you, you realize that there's more people around you that have had it or are going through it and surviving it. And, don't or aren't fearing the, you know, the, the bad stigmatisms of cancer that we all, you know, in our minds think like, Oh, if you get this, this is bad. And this is sure it's bad, but technology and modern medicine is pretty amazing. And what I went through and what I'm going through um, and how fast my body responded to the therapy for this uh, that is a miracle in itself because I, I was not ready for my body fighting this as fast as it did. I just, in my mind, I just had these really bad thoughts, which is, which is pretty standard for, for anybody that's going through something like this. Um, but it's, it's life and that's, that's where it's at right now for me. Well, I think it's important to hear as well, because I think firstly, you know, we see, how chemo devastates people my one friend uh josie who's a police officer i mean it it turned her into a skeleton basically and she's she's kind of working her way back out again now um but you know there's also that kind of scorch earth philosophy that kicks against anyone with with kind of you know knowledge of human physiology because you know it's like a control alt delete and hopefully everything else kicks in so when you're hearing now that there's there's progression in that where certain drugs are you know are not as bad with the keep with the the impact on the body or you know the the focus radio radiology can actually or radiation therapy can actually you know alleviate some of the global symptoms i think it takes the fear out of going through the chemo route when so many people either do chemo and still pass away or do chemo, but it, I mean, it ravages them for years. You know, the, yes, all of that. And, and the, the most important part of that is the early detection, right? You, you always hear that early detection is key. Early detection is key. I, I am, I am living proof of that. And I am, I am here to tell people like it is critically important to make sure you are seeing your doctor on a regular basis, you are getting blood work on a regular basis. You are being screened on a regular basis, especially if you're in a line of work that will um, expose you to the dangers that we face. And uh, I mean, I still sit there some nights going, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe 
how this was found. I cannot believe the, the way my body has reacted to this. I cannot believe how very fortunate I am and not to take any moments in life for granted ever again. Um, and you, you don't, you don't begin to realize that until you're going through it. And, and I think if more people in life, um, treated life that way, we'd be way better off uh, in a lot of different aspects for sure. Beautiful. Well, for people listening then, um, you know, what, what would you say as far as, you know, the type of screening they should seek out, the type of blood work scans, anything so that, you know, when they go to whatever practitioner they usually use or maybe their department uses that they can figure out, you know, if there's any gaps into what they're being offered versus the comprehensive analysis that they should be seeking? That's the tricky question, because if you ask me that question like you just did, I say you go to your doctor if you're a firefighter you demand a PET scan every year or two years, what, whatever. Now, is that conceivable? No, because most practitioners aren't going to just say, all right, we're going to get you in for a PET scan because one, you're exposed to, to the radiation levels. You're exposed to things during those testing. And if you don't have a reason to do it, they're not going to do it because they don't want to spend the money on that. That's the, that's the unfortunate truth. I, if I would have just listened to my doctor and the blood works fine, you're okay, this would have been a completely different outcome. I think it's important if you do have an ailment or something's not right in your body, you go to your doctor and you try to figure out what it is. And if you aren't getting the answers that you, you want, keep pushing for the testing that is going to get you the answer in its totality to what is actually happening and why you're having that pain. If something's nagging you and lasting for, for an exorbitant amount of time, don't do what I did. Just, just don't assume. Go in and get those tests that are going to make you sleep at night knowing you don't have something in your body that's trying to take you out. Blood work uh, is important. You know, Get tested for those tumor markers. Get tested for those cancers. I passed a lymphoma test. So when they did the, the marker test for me, it, it said that I didn't have lymphoma. So there's another you know, I guess if you want to call it, you know, a miracle or a medical marvel, whatever, it just, it, it came and it happened that I showed that I didn't have that, but I ended up having it. The only thing that caught it was the PET scan. That's truly the only thing that caught it. And they knew what it was, was a PET scan for me. Um, I think having those, those relationships with your doctors, having those, that ability to talk to your doctor and um, have the open conversations and have a doctor that's willing to put those tests out there and get you tested for things. Um, the colorectal screening that we do, the P or the uh, prostate um, screenings that we do for the, for the, for the men uh, mammograms for females is important. Maybe you don't wait until a 40 year mark. Maybe you try to go in when you're 30 and get it and see if your doctor will allow it um, because cancer doesn't care. And I didn't want to be in this situation. And I, and I, I'm sure this podcast may not resonate for some folks. It may be boring for some folks to hear. Um, but I just want the message to get out there that if it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. And don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to, to open yourself up and, and get the screening. Because I love life. I want to I wanna live another 30, 40 years if, if, if I'm able to. I don't, I don't want to be taken out by something that I never would have found if I didn't push it. 
Well, again, thank you so much. I mean, I think you, what makes this conversation so powerful is you're speaking for all the people that didn't catch it in time. And that's millions and millions and millions and millions of people around the world, you know, and it's, it's, you know, one part of the conversation needs to be why are we, you know, so many people getting cancer. And obviously that involves looking at, you know, our, our soil, our food, our air, our water, um, but also, you know, the way we work, our men and women. But it is very important. I don't think anyone will be bored because you firstly get to, you know, sow some optimism in, into otherwise a pretty doom and gloom conversation. Um, but secondly, you know, tell the cautionary tale, which is, you know, I did everything right. But for the longest time, I almost didn't get tested. I almost kind of, you know, went under the radar. So for men and women that are not sleeping, you know, basically a, a third, a half of their life for the entire career as a firefighter and being exposed to carcinogens and having high level of stress on the calls, organizational stress. You know, we are an absolute shitstorm of, of, uh, um, you know, potential when it comes to all diseases. But I mean, cancer is taking so many of our people's lives and we need to hear the stories from, you know, people like yourself that had it, that got it in time, you know, that, that had a certain treatment that worked for them, that changed lifestyles. Um, and, you know, can now, like I said, advocate for everyone else who didn't. Fact. You know, if, if, if people want it, I'd be more happy to, to give you my cell phone if you want to put it in the, in the show notes or you want me to give it verbally over the, um, over the uh, podcast now. But if anybody is going through this, if anybody is in the infant stages of this and they, they need a voice at two in the morning, voice at two in the afternoon, if they just want somebody to talk to that has, unfortunately walk the walk and can walk the walk with them and guide them. I'm more than happy to do that. Um, if anybody wants to talk about the CrossFit games, the medical team and how to get on it, uh, you can utilize that number as well. Um, so I mean, if I'm here to help anybody that needs it. Okay. Yeah. If you want to give it over the air, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a Marin County, uh, number. So it's 415-254-8533. If you want to text me, shoot me a text. If you want to call me, if I don't pick up right away, just leave a message and I'll definitely call you back. Um, and if there's anybody local to me that's going through this and they need somebody to sit with them during a, a chemo treatment or a doctor's appointment, I will drop everything and, and be with them. Um, it's being being uh, in a team is, is critically important during this and not being alone. Trust me, I wish I had somebody at 2 a.m. I could call and just reassure me. And I didn't have that. And that's why I want to offer it to people. Well, Owen, I want to say thank you. I mean, firstly, you know, just for that, because there's going to be people listening that maybe are in a dorm, you know, at three in the morning, you're worried about, you know, some stomach pain or whatever it is. But, you know, again, taking the time to not only lead through the most recent part of your story, but also the events leading up to, I mean, from your grandparents to the CrossFit experience to where we are now, there's so much in that. But I mean, you know, obviously what you've been through recently is is truly potentially going to save lives. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story today. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we can uh, talk again and meet up again and uh, share a beer or something. Well, Owen, we recorded about a week ago. Um, I think we left the recording at you were waiting for a PET scan. Well, I was about to put this episode out and you had texted me last night saying that you got the results. So it seemed criminal to put that out, especially when hope is definitely at the center of the conversation. So 
I would wanted to put this addendum in. It's the first time I've done this, but I think it's important that we kind of round off the story. And obviously, again, the the tidal wave that this this result brought. So, um, tell me about you know events leading up to the phone call, and then you know the the wave of emotion that created. Huh. My man, um, God, I, I didn't think I'd get emotional like that that quickly. But hearing you say that stuff, so you know, first off, I I just want to thank you. I mean, you specifically and your audience for giving me the opportunity just to get awareness out. And I'm not sure my message is going to resonate with some folks and it may just seem like a, a rambling story uh, to others, but um, it truly is about just getting awareness out for your, for your own health and your own, um, just your own, your own health. That's, that's it basically. And so I have my PET scan on um, uh, May 27th. Uh, the Friday, and then my doc set up an appointment for June 7th, uh, yesterday for me. Uh, my results came back in a couple days after the 27th, but I purposely didn't open it. <laughs> so I had my results sitting there on my phone, and I could have uh, easily opened it up and read it, but there would have been Dr. E's in there that I wouldn't have known, and it probably would have derailed me even further. But uh, yesterday, 4.30 California time, um, I got the phone call that I had been hoping for. Um, uh, no evidence of cancer anymore in my body. Um, five months ago, I was diagnosed, obviously, with stage four primary lymphoma in the bone of the right hip, the right acetabulum uh, that had spread to my left side uh, and part of my sacrum. And uh, hard work, perseverance, um, following what the doctor said, uh, listening to my body and taking care of myself how I thought I needed to. Uh, went through the six cycles, and yesterday, um, nothing, not a not a trace of cancer anywhere in my body, um, completely clear. And now I have another PET scan set up six months from now. And, um, just, just an amazing, um, an amazing turn of events, uh, over this last half year for me, um, where I've come as a, <laughs> as an adult prior to, and then as an adult afterwards, uh, and just the different outlook that I have on life and living and everything that goes with that, uh, and the people that surround me, uh, my career that, uh, has taken care of me, uh, for my entire adult life and my family. Um, and now, um, having a clean bill of health and a second chance at life, uh, like we discussed in the, in the first podcast, uh, now it's, now I've been given that opportunity to to do good again for a second time and look at things uh, a lot more different. Um, yeah, just it's still a shock uh, to me. I know that there are many out there that uh, don't get this message, and um, there are people that are going to listen to this that have lost family members to cancer, and that's the reason I wanted to do this is I don't want anybody else to to have somebody in their life go away because of this. I don't want anybody else to go through this and not have the education or the understanding and, and lose their own life from this. So I hope this message resonates with folks. I hope it uh, gets people out there to get to their doctors and do their annual screenings, especially those that are exposed, uh, fire, military, police, um, and do those yearly screenings that are available. And, uh, and thank folks like you that have the avenue and the, and the means to get the message out there. 
Well, I know when when you received the news, there was a very kind of sterile clinical delivery to it, and this is something I've actually heard the other way around, where I've had you know people on the show when they were told they did have cancer, it was very matter of fact, and there wasn't um, really any avenue after that. Like you got cancer, all right, you know, bye. Um, and so we, I, you know, I've had that kind of perspective on here, um, but also you know that you've kind of really been the first person I think has heard that even when good news was delivered, maybe that bedside manner element was missing. As we are, a lot of us are in that medical community. You know, kind of talk to me about that. You've got literally a phone call that's going to dictate if possibly you live or die. Yep, yep. Uh, that I, you, you nailed it. Um, when I was told, and I'm not sure I mentioned it on the on the first uh, time we spoke, but um, I was absolutely blown away at just how um, nonchalant the doctors were when they uh, when they mentioned it and they told it, um, and subsequently when they just told me I was clear how direct they are, and if anybody does go through this, just prepare yourself for a very sterile um, non informative conversation that's going to answer your questions immediately. It's just going to be so direct and to the point, which is the scariest thing for me. And, and being in the medical field, as long as I have going on 27 years as a paramedic, um, I look back at all the times I've been on patients that were in the same boat I was and how, how embarrassed I am at my lack of empathy. Cause I, I fell into that also. Um, but when you're on the receiving end of it, it is, it is unreal to, uh, to hear the way people talk just so matter of fact, with no caring in the world, just direct. And then when you want something positive from them to say, they don't, they just ramble on in a very medical ease type way. And I understand why they have to do that. I, I get that they have to, they have to be business or they have to you know be businesslike and they have to get the message out. But man, I, I think medical school could do one year of just bedside manner training and that medical school across the board, doctors, nurses, paramedics, EMTs, everything. Um, and it still wouldn't be enough um, because why do we always, or what do you always discuss is, is the mental health side of things. And, and when you get a diagnosis such as cancer, if you don't have somebody there that's you know, also trying to support you emotionally, but they're just trying to get a message out, it can do a lot more damage. And the same thing happened yesterday. It was just, all right, well, your scans are all clear. Um, things look way different than the first time. And obviously I'm paraphrasing a lot here, but um, the message is still the same. And then it took me asking like, okay, well, great. My scans are clear. W- what about the cancer? W- what do you see with, with my cancer? And then it was like, oh, um, no, you're, you're all clear. There's, there's no cancer at all. We don't see anything. You're NED, no evidence of disease. Uh, we'll see you in six months for, for your follow-up PET scan. And I was just, I broke down in tears. Uh, my son flew in um, from Hawaii to be with me uh, for this. And um, to get that word, but the way it was given, I, I just wasn't ready for that. I was expecting, you know, like, congratulations. Uh, these are the phone calls we want to make. There's no evidence. And then go into the technical stuff. But they didn't do that. And that's why I offered my phone number the last time we spoke was if somebody's going through this, I want somebody to reach out to me. I want somebody to have somebody in their corner that's going to be there for that emotional support um, to help them and guide them through what's about to come, good or bad. Um, but I'm, I'm here right now to say that there is always going to be hope. 
there is always going to be um, a positive to every negative that happens in life. That's the whole yin and yang. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm here to, to say I survived it. And uh, now it's just, you know, having a second chance of life to, uh, to bring awareness to folks and to get the message out and to be there for other firefighters, police officers uh, that are going to go through this because it'll happen again. But I want to make sure that, uh, you know, the, the emotional support side of things is there. Beautiful. Well, just one last area before I let you go. Again, you know, you're waiting for this phone call. You finally get the best of news, but you're still going through chemo. You, you know, you, there's not everything is working as, as efficiently as it should be. So now you're having to differentiate between, you know, am I feeling this because I'm still recovering from my immune system being destroyed or is this cancer coming back? So talk to me about the mental element. You've had all the best news, but you're still dealing with how you feel. Yeah. You know, um, when you're faced with your own uh, mortality and anybody in the emergency services can, can relate to this, I, I would hope, um, you never think it's going to be you. It's always a statistic until it's you. Then all of a sudden it becomes very real. And I'll never forget that, you know, when I first met with the doctors and they told me, all right, you have 80% chance of surviving this. And then a few days later it was, okay, we're dropping you to a 70% now because we're upstaging you to stage four. And I received that in an email that wasn't even done on the phone. That was, I was upstaged in an email. So you can imagine me reading that and with nobody to, to talk to. <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, I had to like, I had to really sit down and think about, well, wait a second, if I cross the street and don't look left and right, I'm at a 50, 50 chance of making it. So I'm already at a 70 now with the cancer diagnosis. So this is a positive and getting this news. And then as you stated, your body has got to come back from what it just went through on the, the medical side or the chemical medical side and what it was put you know, what was put into your body to fight this thing. And so now I have to really focus every day when I, when I take my first step in the morning to not derail myself with worry. Okay. My knees hurt today. Is this me being 45 years old and doing jujitsu for 20 years playing junior pro hockey, uh, being a fireman, like all these things that can destroy your body. But I keep going back to, oh shit, bone pain. I've got cancer. Um, it didn't go away. Doctors lied to me. Um, what do I do now? I'm going to be back in chemo. All these things that I shouldn't be doing. I should be, I should be not even going there, but your mind does. And um, it's difficult. And each person's going to have their own way of coping with it be a counselor, being going for a hike, going for a run, hanging out with their families, going for a swim, whatever that may be. Um, the emotional toll is, is significant. Um, and especially when you put your own mortality into it and you come back from that and it's, uh, it's hard. So it's always going to be a lifelong journey for me, especially. Well, again, Owen, I just want to say thank you. I just, I'm so glad that we got to, to revisit briefly so we could get this good news and kind of add it to this episode because, you know, as we talked about in the prior interview, you know, I've had people on here whose loved ones didn't make it. And I've had one uh, fellow firefighter who had his own journey and did come out the other end. So it's important that we, 
you know, we contrast those two with the severity and the potential, you know, the, the deadly potential of this disease and address cleaning our gear and address the firefighter work week and other areas that we, we touched on. But also for people that maybe just discovered they've got it or maybe kind of on their cancer battle now impart some hope with stories like yours. Okay. Hey, yes, there are people that we lose, but there are also people that come out the other side. Right. Right. Again, everybody has my number. Um, please, um, reach out. You just need a voice. You just want to talk to somebody. You don't want to talk to a counselor or a coworker. I mean, we know the way the coffee house or the firehouse coffee table banter goes. Um, I mean, I am, I'm here for anybody and having just gone through it, I, I want to be there for, for somebody and help them. And literally before this conversation, uh, I sent you a text message. I had a neighbor that's, that's, uh, suffering from, uh, a cancer and he came over and, and he just needed guidance from me because he knows what I just went through. And he's an older gentleman, older than me. And, um, you know, I was able to help him and, and talk him through some things that he wasn't uh, wasn't really able to speak to anybody else about because he doesn't feel comfortable doing it. So um, I hope people hear this message. I hope they go to their doctors. I hope they get screened. I hope they push for screenings that they need and want, and uh, they stay healthy.